So welcome back to the Diaries of the Wild Ones. I want to give a really big thank you to Wild Earth Australia because I'm just so stoked to be a part of their team. Through them, I get to meet the most amazing adventurers because as a company, they are really supporting people that are just getting out there and giving life a really good crack. They're just such a good company that truly believes in the adventurous lifestyle. So a big thank you to them. Now, if you need any gear for your next adventure, running, hiking, camping, climbing, survival, you name it, there you have it. So go to the website, wildearth.com.au and put in the 10% discount code, Diaries of the Wild Ones, all one word, capital letters. Free shipping Australia-wide, they even ship internationally. Ingrid Marker, who you're about to meet, is just one amazing woman who has lived such a courageous life. And I'm so honored and blessed that I had the opportunity to sit down with her and, and hear her story. And throughout the time that I spent up in North Queensland, I got to hear several stories from this woman and oh my God, she is absolutely incredible. But during this podcast, something absolutely magical happened. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm sorry for the interruptions that happened during this podcast, but something so rare and so magical happened. An endangered species mated in front of us. Two giant cassowaries came into Ingrid's pro property that backs on a World Heritage Rainforest and started courting in front of us. Now, if you don't know what a cassowary is, it's pretty much a dinosaur. It's like an emu, but it's very colorful and they're absolutely magical, beautiful animals. They're also, which I didn't know, one of the most, or they are the most dangerous Australian animal, which I didn't know that. Regardless, they're absolutely beautiful and there's also something really sad that happens at the end of this podcast. But I apologize for the interruptions. It was well worth interrupting the middle of this podcast for us to watch these cassowaries mate. Enjoy, guys. Ingrid, welcome. Thank you. Now, you were saying earlier, well, it was actually just a moment ago, you said life is like a dolphin? Yeah, can definitely. I, can I get you one? Is that what you said? <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I, well, I, I think everybody's life is like a dolphin. Yeah. In, in the fact that, you know, you can dive into really bad depths of despair and dive really deep into any subject or into your life and go really deep into darkness and despair and also you can be leaping for joy and plunging out of the water and riding on the waves of bubbles and riding on ecstasy just like a dolphin and I think life's about catching waves and being out there and feeling free and and riding those waves for sure do you mean like with that metaphor do you do you mean like letting go of control and just going with it and riding um, no, I wouldn't say control. Um, I guess the best way for me to explain it is to tell you a little bit about m my life and my journey and in that you, we can weave in the dolphin story and my metaphor. Oh, please. So you're actually, you're one of the most interesting women I've met and we've had some amazing oh, story stop time. stop it. No, I'm talking <laughs> up now. No, we've had some amazing story time. So I'd really like to hear, I'd really like to hear the background of Ingrid. Oh, thank you, Aaron. Um, okay, so I was born and raised in Sydney, as opposed to born and bred, because you can't have been bred, because otherwise your parents would have been on a breeding program, and would have been <laughs> around the wrong way. So I was born, and then I was raised in, I, on the hindsight, I was quite privileged. I was raised on the northern beaches of Sydney, 
So my childhood was um, on the water, sailing, surfing, water skiing. I thought every every child in Australia had that. Um, I was soon to learn that, yeah, it was quite privileged. Um, and then at a too young age, I met the first boyfriend, love of my life, and had two children with him. And I ended up in a very, very dark domestic violence situation that was really very traumatic. And that's what I mean about the dolphins. You know, I was riding these amazing waves of life as a young child and having a wonderful time and ended up in a really very dangerous situation with a very violent man and had a two-year-old and five-year-old before I could escape and come to my new home where we're sitting now having a chat. When when that was happening, mm. with the tools that you had as a human at the time, did you realise like how bad it was? Like, did you realise that was something, or did you just think that that's how life was? Because I often wonder with domestic violence why women are in that situation with a with a man like that. Like, have you ever heard of the frog in the hot water story? No. Okay, it's only a little one. Okay. Um, if you put a frog in boiling water, it'll jump out. But if you put a frog in cold water and slowly put it on the heat until it bo- comes to boil, the frog will just not notice the the rising heat until it dies. And to me, that's what happens with domestic violence. You start out probably in lust. Um, in my situation, and I've heard many other people will talk about the fact that you know, these men, are, they groom you, they're charming, they're charismatic, they're generally good-looking, they can often be the alpha male. Um, I guess, I guess you know, now that you've met me, I, I guess I'm an alpha female as well. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you attract that type as well. And um, they slowly whittle away your confidence and your self-worth and through their break your spirits. Or they're like I, their need for control? I think more their fear. I think it comes from a place of fear and their need for control and fear of losing you. And it's like the vital essence that make you so lovable is what they, I believe they try and capture and hold and you get excommunicated from your friends, from your family, you end up very isolated and alone. Your self-worth plummets until such stage that you don't know who you are anymore and you feel so afraid and so alone and you know I had the threat held over me that if I ever left him he'd killed my children so to leave a man in that situation was very yeah terrifying. Do you think he he meant it? Yeah there was clinical um, psychiatrists supported that narrative. Wow. Do, Do you reckon right now in Australia or in Australia do you reckon right now, um, since your time, because it's, it's funny because, well, it's not funny, but I, I mean like um, that is something like my parents, there was a lot of domestic violence um, in their early relationships and, and stuff like that. When that is this, do you reckon it's a ri- rising in Australia or do you reckon it's been declining? Because I, I know right now with the COVID that it's something that has risen, but do you reckon it's something like us as men are getting more aware of or do you, is it a worsening problem? I don't know because I left that behind 30 years ago. Um, But I do know that a lot more advocacy has been done, but I don't know whether it's been actioned on a political level as much as... Well, we need a lot more work because my basic understanding is I think there's um, one woman a week 
in Australia still dies of domestic violence. You're kidding me. No. Rosie, Rosie Batty was a huge um, advocate f- and a victim of an, a terrible assault, which don't really want to go down this rabbit hole, but yeah. um, it's one that I think a lot more work needs to go into yeah. across Australia and globally. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, alcohol has a large part to play. Um, I think men need to do more rites of passage to know how to be a strong man, but yet to be compassionate and, and a good listener. Mm. And um, men need support as much as women do in this space. Mm. Yeah. But that's what I mean about <laughs> life yeah. is like a dolphin, you know. Yeah. It, it got really dark. And so to escape that um, that chapter in my life, I, I basically fled with a two-year-old and a five-year-old and $500 in my back pocket and I just jumped on the plane and... Was it scary? No, it was... Liberating. It was. And I was singing that song, I'm free to do what I want any other time. (laughs) Yeah. Probably with more passion than that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And jumped on a plane. Mum and Dad weren't happy about it at the time, but as far as I was concerned... To live another day in that kind of trauma and thinking that my two sons were going to grow up to be potentially like their father was intolerable. So I ran away to far north Queensland and I put a deposit on a beautiful six-acre block of land in Mission Beach. Um, The back and the side of me was World Heritage and I was going to start my happy new life here and the kids and I were living in two two-man tents with an awning between us and we set up a camp while I decided where we'd sort of build a house and was so any, forth. Was there anything on this property when you bought it? No, it was totally clear-filled. Um, <laughs> I should tell you how I got here, actually. Yeah. A girlfriend won an all-expenses-paid holiday to Dunk Island and I'd never been to tropical far north Queensland. And when I arrived on Dunk Island, I spent the first day getting drunk, feeling sorry for myself that my marriage was over at that particular time. And I sort of was really confused, didn't know what I was going to do. The second day I went, actually, this is really, really cool. And with my water sports background, I could get a job working at the water sports here and I could make a new life for myself here. The next day I jumped on a bus and came over to the, jumped on a boat got to the mainland at Mission Beach and went on a bus and drove through the valley here. And it was then that I f- saw a tunnel of canopy of the most beautiful tropical jungle I'd ever seen in my life. Came around the corner and it was lightly raining and I saw this block had just been freshly bulldozed, raised to the ground and all the um, red earth was running off the embankment onto the road and all I saw was the land was bleeding and I was so upset to see that a, a, a human being could actually torture land like that and bulldoze something of such exquisite beauty that I basically from that moment thought, right, I can start a new life here. Um, I'm going to buy that block of land. I had gone whitewater rafting for the day and I made the decision I was going to become a whitewater raft guide. I was going to buy the block of land and I was going to move here and eventually get a job on Dunk Island Water Sports. And I ticked all boxes. So strong manifestation. Very strong, yeah. So the kids and I moved here and we started re-vegging it with both natives and tropical fruit trees and made a, I did a permaculture degree. Um, And so we're doing 
permaculture design gardens, um, living very sustainably on the on the land. But very early in the piece, I was gobsmacked and grabbed the kids and huddled them behind me because a unicorn basically stepped out of the forest, a dinosaur, and it was the first time I'd ever seen a cassowary. Did you even know they existed? No. I, I kind of had that the other day <laughs> when, I was at my, uh, when I was at Uncle Rogie's, when... Yeah, when the cassowary came down, this huge dinosaur. And the only thing I remembered from him was when I was a kid at Flay's Fauna, like in an excursion, one came over and stole my lunch, and I was so scared of it. <laughs> and I've never seen him since. And it was it was the same thing. I was just like, I was so awesome, like, or gobsmacked or, or in awe of it because it was like, this thing's a dinosaur. And yeah. with so much beauty. And I was like... and. And I'm just wondering if you had the same realisation. As I looked at it, at its rarity, it's such a rare thing. And I was looking at such beauty. And when you see stuff like that, that in its natural environment, for me, it was like, wow, this is so unique. This needs to be protected. Yes, definitely. Well, not having ever seen one or heard of one, it may as well have been a dinosaur. It was like, or a yeti, you know, or a <laughs> unicorn. It was like, oh my goodness. And and it was taller than I was. It was jet black, very regal. But watching the bird, I, I thought, wow, I want to be just like that bird. They're silent. They're stately. They're regal. They've got a, a real presence. They eat tropical fruit and yeah. and drink lots of water they love swimming and they have a siesta every afternoon afternoon rise with the sunrise go to bed with the sunset what's not to love wow i want to be like a cassowary <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so what did that what did that do for you as as your journey how did that start your journey well before oh wow my mind's going in all these rabbit holes at the moment. Yeah, it was so nice to let it flow. Yeah. So um, I went on a journey and became a citizen scientist um, studying and researching cassowaries, and it's ended up being one of the longest ever um, research projects done on cassowaries. So I've been documenting cassowaries now for nearly 30 years. In February, it'll be 30 years, and that's got me into different employment. Um, I'm on the cassowary recovery team, work with the Threatened Species Commissioner, um, I was the manager of the Cassowary Hospital for many years and did a couple of beautiful world firsts with raising a baby cassowary from a chick um, to release back to the wild. Um, the chick became an orphan due to domestic dog attack um, on the father. So went through lots of um, learning experiences in that role. And it's interesting because once again when you say about manifesting, as a child, I just my hero heroines were Jane um, Fossey and Diane Goodall, with the large primates. And all my life, all I wanted to do was be like them. And I guess in a way, I found that same niche here in far north Queensland, looking at after an animal, well, not looking after one, protecting one from um, you threats. Can, you can hear the wind going through the rainforest right now. Yeah, it's so nice. It's beautiful. And, and cassowaries, yeah, endangered. Yeah, they're endangered. They believe there's only about 1,500 left. And um, they fill the same keystone niche as what um, the primates do with being seed dispersals. Yeah. They're the gardeners of the rainforest. The gardeners of the rainforest. Yeah. 
are they on a decline? Because I know they're an old bird that you're saying yesterday they last like 50, 60 years old. Yeah. Um, well, they are on a decline, but the whole ecosystem of the wet tropics is in decline at the moment. Yeah. Why is that? Should we go into that? Or should we go? I want to know. <laughs> I want to know everything. <laughs> well, you're asking me before about what I did for employment. Yeah, okay, sorry. Because that's what you're really interested in. And um, I'm just wondering if we go back into the, the rainforest story, we might forget about the... Okay, the, yeah, yeah, you go back. Yeah, listen. yeah. So um, you, you asked me before about when you arrived, the fleet of sea kayaks in the carport. So I started um, an adventure tour company taking people kayaking for one-day, three-day and seven-day expeditions on the east coast of Hitchinbrook um, for the seven-day safaris, um, three-day on the family group and one day to Dunk Island. And it was there that I had, after 18 years of running that adventure tour company and some of the best times of my life paddling with whales and dolphins. So so what would you do? So... You've got that fleet of kayaks down there. Yeah. So you would advertise for tourists when they came to this area for you to take them on adventure tours. Yeah. So I used to work with all the holiday accommodation and the backpackers and um, we'd only take a maximum of eight people. So it was a little bit boutique. All the food on the tour was grown here on the permaculture farm. So it was all fresh, organic, tropical fruit and vegetables. And um, I had a friend that was baking the homemade breads and and muffins and the fruit was coming from my farm and so it was really nice oh, what a fun job i want to yeah. do a job like that oh it's beautiful and so you'd you'd paddle over to the islands or paddle along the coast if you're on a multi-day um pull up at camp um take people on a snorkel safari and i had the basics in reef teach and so forth so do a bit of marine biology um ecosystem talk about the waters out here and then come in for a lovely lunch and then an afternoon rainforest walk and do a little bit of bush tucker and um, history of the area and about the ecology of the rainforest and then paddle home for a sunset paddle home and it was on one of those tours after 18 years that you're asking me about the story you heard about the tiger shark oh yeah yeah When, when you're when you were um, paddling for these eight, 18 years, did you often see crocodiles and sharks? And like, was that a common thing? Um, didn't see crocodiles, um, which is <laughs> normal. You're not ever meant to see a crocodile, um, <gasps> but knew they were there. There's a cashier walking behind you right now. <laughs> oh, that's Ooh. the big girl. Oh, wow. I see, she's a bit territorial. She's standing up, so the the other cassowary might be there. <laughs> Do they have a fight? Yes. I think that's what's about to happen. Oh, I think no. she's going to have a bit of a biffo and tell the boy to get out of her territory. <laughs> oh. okay, They're so, fighting over the waterhole. <laughs> okay, so, so what happened one day with this shark when you're... Oh, so I was, it was actually funny. I picked up Sylvia from Treehouse Hostel and the first thing she said to me, she said, I'm pe- I can't swim and I've never been in a boat before. Is that a problem? I said, no, Sylvia. She said, I'm petrified of sharks. There's no sharks, is there? And I said, no, Sylvia, the crocodiles eat them all. <gasps> and so I, she said, take good care of me. My mum really loves me. 
<laughs> no worries, Sylvia. How, how old was Sylvia? Oh, she was probably in her twenties. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, and then I picked up a, um, another young couple from staying in a, com- a flash accommodation, and she came. Um, I don't think her expectation met what was actually going to happen on the tour because she came with a full face of makeup and she was um, very dressed up and I think she thought there was an engine going to be on the boat and she high wasn't... heels and, you know, fully made up. And you're like, no, you're about to paddle like several kilometres. Yeah, <laughs> and you, ne- you need to get rid of your makeup so we can put some suntan cream and insect repellent on you. <laughs> and... Um, and she was English and her wasn't very competent on the water and her South African boyfriend that solved every problem with a gun who was a real a macho man and then two non English speaking Japanese. So what a, so diversity. So the, I've been a tour guide before and this seems like a really hard group to take into into nature or or, or, or like it's such a physical thing like this. So you got someone who has never swam. Yeah, who can't swim. Yeah, never been in a boat. Never been in a boat. You got another girl who's, uh, let's say, quite petite and not that confident in anything like this. You know, let's, yeah. yeah. Then you got a macho guy yes. who comes from ego. Yes, and like you know, no, not clear thinking. And then two Japanese tourists that just don't speak. <laughs> oh, that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> it, it was a nightmare. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. So um, when we were paddling over, I. I because I'm a solo guide, when I did my one day, I, I realised really early on in the piece I'm not going to put the macho guy with his girlfriend because otherwise if anything goes wrong, he'll paddle off and leave us the rest of the crew for dead. So I put him in a single, Yeah. the two weaker girls in a double and the two Japanese in a double because I knew it was going to be a really slow paddle to get yeah. to the island. So the man and I were talking about real exciting adventures in Africa, which was really great for me because I haven't been there yet. And um, the girls were having a lo- lovely time, leisurely paddle over to the island and the Japanese were sort of trailing a little bit. And I turned around to check on them and um, we generally stay in speaking distance, not too far away from each other. And I saw a... Um, was it, wait, 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 was it a calm, like... It was, was a little a... bit grey, overcast and, and picking up to about 10 knots. So starting to get a little bit choppy? Yeah. Well, it was towards the end, yeah. Yeah. It was about picked up to 15 knots towards the so end even of the started white capping well not at that particular time yeah. when it, the incident started so i turned around and coming in at ramming speed straight at the japanese boat was a meter high dorsal fin that just sunk before he got to the people and he rammed their boat and they nearly went in and so, so wait 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 so you, you turn around and there's a there's a fin yeah, coming straight at, and then what? It's it started it going under, it but, disappeared. The, but the fin hit the bottom of the boat. No, I think it was the nose of the crop of uh, the shark. I I can't, don't know exactly because of the angle of it. I just knew that the fin came, was slicing in the water, and then it sort of disappeared and dove, and then the, their boat just got launched and they nearly fell in yeah it was just luck not good management on their behalf that they didn't go in and then i instructed everyone to raft up what was your initial reaction but like we're in trouble (laughs) was it one of those like flight attendant moments where it's like hey this happens all the time guys you just need to like were you you trying to keep it calm no i I, psychologically in my mind i i had sort of gone okay in the 18 years like i had it in my mind that 
there's going to be a day where I'm going to have to do some kind of tourniquet because somebody's going to lose an arm or the leg. Worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. Um, or I'm going to have to do CPR on someone. Um, and somebody's going to lose an arm or a leg or something. And that's worst case scenario. I, I never thought it would happen, but I had psychologically prepped for that event. Yeah. I hadn't prepped for the event that I would watch people being eaten whole bodily and being bitten in half and I could be one of them. I hadn't got my head around that. <laughs> and yeah. so I was doing that on steroids at the time when I saw this big shark come in and then... As it swam in, I got everybody to raft up, but it was quite interesting. Were they panicking? Was everyone panicking? Well, not at that stage. I just said everyone come together because I don't think anyone else had seen it at that stage. I just said everybody bundle up, raft up. Do the Japanese girls know what hit them? Uh, The guy and the girl. um, Yeah, but they thought that was part of the adventure. I don't think they consciously thought that was unexpected. It might have, like, I don't know. Did they see the thing? Did they just feel something hit them? I don't know. (laughs) because it came from behind them. Yeah. So I I can't answer that question because yeah. it was sort of it's a weird thing when you go into something like that because it happens fast forward and in slow motion both at the same time. Yeah. So there's a lot of questions you're asking me I don't know. Yeah. But um I got everybody to raft up but the shark wouldn't permit the Japanese people to come and join us and it acted for the first time I'd ever seen it like a sheepdog and it kept on using the nose its nose to push on their nose of the kayak. And I'm in ocean-going Tasman Twins to steer them away and wouldn't allow them to paddle and join us. So wait, wait, wait. So you all grouped <laughs> up. You all grouped up, and you're telling them to come in. And this shark is it like coming at speed, or is it just like hanging in the water and just pushing it? Both. It would both because it kept on changing because it would dive and you wouldn't see it for a few minutes, and then they'd start to move in, and then we'll just ram them and turn their the angle of their boat without them having any control over it. And then other times it would just swim along and just nudge it and just push it and hurt it, but stay parallel to the boat and just hold it there. So it was doing sort of both behaviours. At this stage, is everyone starting to panic? Well, the Sylvia and the, the girl, um, the English girl, were throwing up and they'd wet themselves and Sylvia was sort of screaming a bit and she was saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I've been sick and and I'm just saying, don't worry, you know, if anything happens and you fall in the water, just, you know, get back in the boat quickly. So they're they're pretty much just like frozen, crying with fear. Yeah, they're they're panicking. The girls are now panicking and the guy... Panicked to the point of throwing up. Yeah, and Sylvia had wet the boat and she was very embarrassed and I'm saying, don't worry about it. But the man was really peaking and he was yelling abuse at me for not having a firearm and really going aggro and um, as he's going aggro he was really distressing the girls so I I just created this narrative that we were fine it was a baleen whale it doesn't have any teeth it's acting a bit territorial but don't worry about it it's all fine just calm down because I knew if I got on the marine radio and called for help from the water sports at Dunk Island would have been the fastest or get somebody over, by that time everyone would have panicked and I wouldn't have been able to control the, yeah. the situation. So I thought at this stage, best case scenario is to just get everybody 
to calm down and the only way I could do that was just convince them that it was a baleen whale and we were in no danger whatsoever but you just don't want to fall in because it might have a baby so yeah. I had this could whole you, thing you, so you are doing the fly attendant thing but you, yeah you, have you seen the shark like have you seen being well, able to identify the type of shark well at that stage um the shark swam between me because we were rafted up, which means you, you had all the boats next to each other and were holding each other's boats together to make a pontoon. Mm. And the shark kept on swimming between us. The Japanese people were being herded away. And as he's swimming between us, um, I'd have to let go of the girl's boat. And his dorsal fin was higher than my hat. And when my when I'm sitting down, my bum is at water level and the top of its dorsal fin was at the height of the top of my back hat and so it would totally block me out and I'd go we're fine we're fine don't worry about being sick and you'd just lose silver side of Sylvia for a few minutes and then you'd get her back and it was then that I heard on the marine radio that we have um the skydivers um fly around the area and they flew over us and they radioed Ingrid you got a tiger shark underneath you it's longer than your boat and my boats are they're huge 5.8 meters long and the tiger shark was longer, and I could see it was longer. Yeah, so and we could see its eye, and it was sort of just wow. cruising past. And wow, what a thing that they've come, th- that they've come over and looked down and seen that. And what mm. a sight for them to see this like huge shark. Yeah, under you guys. And I turned off the radio because I didn't want to hear what they were saying as much as I didn't want my clients to hear what they were saying. And I was sort of hoping that they would have told water sports at Dunk. Um, actually, I've never thought to ask whether they did, which is bizarre. I just had that realisation then. Anyway, but... I- and it's it's funny too with these, these situations, it's hindsight. It's so easier for people to sit back and be like, oh, why didn't you just like do this or slowly like put an emergency, like and say, oh, like, and, you know, like, but in these situations of extreme, like you've got to, you've got to play it by ear and you've got to... You know, you've got to adapt to every situation. Mm. You know what I mean? And it's so like when, when you're at such a heightened level of stress too, it's like so hard to think clear. And like that's the best thing you can do is keep a group. Because I've been with groups, especially in nature. I remember this one girl um, panicked on this. Oh, I remember. It's almost to the point I had to slap her. I had, to, I had to like slap her back and be like, hey, hey, you, you have to do this right now. You have to like, you know, because panicking, like as soon as you fear, you die. Remember we were talking about that thing the other day? Yeah. Like as soon as you fear, you've already lost. And it's like you've got to overcome that and make that practical decision. Mm. You know what I mean? But as soon as like you get overcome with fear, which is such a hard thing to do, you know, you just lose. Yeah. Especially with an animal. Like that's the thing with an animal. Like they pick up on that so much and that's like... I, I, I was I was amazed that I was sort of um, I was having an out of body experience mm. on steroids because I was sort of like I realised that I was above my body being the witness to where I was in the boat, actually guiding myself from an out of body experience, saying it on steroids like you're a mother, you've got to get home, you've got to make it home, but the only way you're going to be able to psychologically live with this is if you get all your customers home. So just chill out, and the way to chill out is slow your heart rate, so do it now. And I know that I consciously slowed my heart rate and I actually took control of my heart pounding. I know I took control of my breathing um, rapidly. I just made the decision and it was like an automatic thing, like a 
magic wand just went doom. Mm -hmm. Your heart rate, your rhythm, the electrical circuitry in your body, everything, you've got to get that under control and be totally calm. And Especially I did it. With sharks. I did it. I know I did. And then whilst all that was happening, I was talking to the man, telling him to pull his head in, and he was the one being, you know, the scaredest and scaring the girls, and he had to control his fear, telling the girls they were fine with theirs. But at the same time, I was looking at the Japanese man, and he was hitting the shark with his fin, just playing with it. I think he, I don't think he realised the danger he was in, and the shark at that stage was still stalking them and pushing them around and playing with them like a... I've seen, you know, killer whales with David Attenborough at docos and things with them playing with seals. But the shark was just playing with them and tormenting them and he was splashing back and I'm going, no, no, don't do that, sir. And I had made up my mind that I think there's a very high likelihood that the shark is going to eat the man and I need to brace myself and these people that we're going to watch this man be eaten his girlfriend's going to be in the water. I'm in a single. Am I going to go and pick her up? Or is she going to take one for the team and I'm going to get, grab the rest of the group and go? Because if she's going to be in the water with a shark feeding on a boyfriend, I've got Buckley's of getting over in my single and picking her up and managing the rest of the crew. And I guess managing my own fear because all I could think about it was I had two kids at home. Fuck, that is such a hard decision too. That's like that old, <laughs> you know, that old riddle. Like, what do you do? Like, do you save that? Per There's the guy on the train track and the guy. I don't remember what it is, but you got to make the conscious decision. It was it was hectic. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And and then as we paddle, then. I made the decision that we needed to keep paddling, and at that stage, the wind was picking up. And how long is this? Oh my god. Oh, my God. Sorry, just behind you, a big cassowary just walks straight behind you through the window. Oh, God, just scared uh, the a crap big, out of me. <laughs> that's a big girl. She's just come in for another drink at the pond. How's it doing? Oh, my God, I wish I had my phone on me. We're doing a podcast <laughs> right now, and there's a dinosaur a metre from us through the grass. Oh, look at it. Stand up. Wow. She's being very territorial. Being, she knows the boys around. Yeah, she's getting aggressive. Oh, look at her. Wow. I wish I was... I I'm wish sure. I was filming it too, Aaron. Oh, That's no. pretty magic. And the listeners don't really know what's going on right now. We have a dinosaur. Oh, oh I wonder whether it's a sign. He's on the ground there. It's blown over. The cassowary sign and she's seeing an outline of a cassowary. Surely not. I wonder whether it's flapped around, that sign of a cassowary, whether that's triggering her to act like that. She's... The way she's walking and posturing is like a, a dog about to attack where they've got all their hackles up and, mm. and looking aggro. So we have a huge, like, how would you say, two-metre-tall cassowary um, walking around us right now, but just outside the room, they've got, looking through these huge glass windows, and it's, it's on the staunch. It's stood up, its back's right up, its head's up, and it's... it's... Oh, here's the boy. <gasps> oh, no. Now the boy's coming. Please don't fight. <laughs> that, or is, and, and are look, they mating? She, no, but look, it's like she's walking away from him and he's walking in, but this is bizarre because she looks like she's taking on something else. I wonder if there's, an, <laughs> there's another pop-up casserole going to come out of the forest. <laughs> what are we about to witness? I don't know, but this is absolutely brilliant. Thanks for making me stop working and, and sit down and have this conversation. We're in the Aaron. middle of this extreme, intense um, shark story. <laughs> and now we've got dinosaurs walking around us, two of them. And they're looking at us through the glass. <laughs> wow. 
That is bizarre. That, she, she looks like she's looking at something else, like a third And cassette. like you said earlier, people come from all around the world to witness a cassowary. And we're watching two right now just walk around these huge dinosaur birds. Wow. I'm, I'm so sorry to the listeners that they can't <laughs> witness what we're watching right now. It's gobsmacking, actually. She's going for a drink. Oh, she's sitting down. Wow. That is bizarre. Maybe she's realised that it wasn't, um, there wasn't a threat there after all. These guys must be about to do the wild thing, I, I think. It's a boy and a girl. Yeah. They're only sort of... Oh, hang on a sec. Is, that, is the boy coming over to mount her? Oh, my goodness. Is he? Oh, maybe they're just working out their politics because I think they're so young they haven't done the wild thing yet. Yeah, so and they're maybe just doing that's the dance. Yeah, they're doing the dance. A little bit of courting, cassowary courting. <gasps> they are. Wow. <laughs> this is all of a sudden making the shark story sound boring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm trying to. Th- I'm even trying to think of like consciously how do we describe this for the w- listeners so they they're not listening to this intense story and then suddenly it's just us going wow, looking out the window at something that they have no idea what it is. Well, I can talk about the foliage because we're. We're in a canopy of tree ferns and an endangered palm called a Likuala palm, which is a big, like, fan palm. So we're in a forest that actually joins World Heritage. So we're looking into a World Heritage site, actually, which is all Likuala forest, um, with palms, um, Zambia palm, which is a cycad, which is endangered, lots of different cycads, um, grass trees. And so it's a pretty ancient Gondwana forest. And we're watching two cassowaries that look like they might be courting for the first time because I've been watching these guys come in for quite a few years and they've only just got their breeding colours on. But it did appear like there might have been a third one because she was acting sort of like there was something in the bushes over there. Bizarre. This is great, Aaron. (laughs) Mm, I can't believe we're witnessing this. Wow. And watch him drink. (gasps) He's coming up behind her again. Okay, the podcast is now us commentating. Two cassaries about to get yeah. jiggy with it. Oh, yeah. He's coming up behind her. He's, oh, he is. He's getting horny. Look at it. He's, yeah. he's. Cassowary porn. <laughs> he's trying to figure out what to do. He's like a meter behind. The, and the, the female's so much bigger than the male. Easily 20 kg. Oh, he's backed off. He's getting scared. I you don't know, blame gonna, him. He's got Because the females could smash him, eh? Oh, she could easily smash him, and they do. So that must be so scary being a male, like in this scenario, because he actually has to like mount her and have his way with her, but yet she could just yeah kill him. <laughs> oh, wow! Yeah, look at her. Isn't she beautiful? She's so regal. She's coming out. I'm gonna see how they're gritting their jaw. It's a little bit like Aaron's just gone to grab his camera. <laughs> he can't stand the suspense of not videoing this, and she's clenching a jaw. So it's very much like. Wow. Okay, we're back. Here comes the boy. I wonder, is this at 41 minutes? I wonder if I'm going to have to cut this part out. I don't think so. I should leave it in or just shorten it up. Oh, here he comes. That's crazy. In the middle of a podcast, <laughs> the cassowaries decide to come in and do the jiggy-jiggy behind us. They just keep, like, circling each other kind of thing, eh? Who do you, Does the male have to sell it to the female in this scenario? Yes. Look at her stand up. Wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> That is the best podcast interruption that could ever happen. Two huge dinosaurs come within a meter of us and start start courting each other. What that was that's that is a that was just a really magical experience. 
Sure was. Oh my god. Okay, so back to the shark story. <laughs> Where were we? <laughs> okay, so you're telling the guy he needs to calm down, and you're 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 envisioning um, worst case scenario: the shark was going to eat the guy, and you're you're you've, you're the coming Japanese to the man. conscious. Yeah, you're coming to the conscious decision. Do you have to? Are you going to leave her if this happens? If worst case scenario happens, and and take the crew like you're. You're, you're, you're planning the for the yeah you're you're in this like crossroads of emotion yeah well but at the same time while all of that was going on that's what I mean about multiple things happening I was maintaining that my blood pressure didn't go up pulse rate and everything but I was also admiring how beautiful it was and it was like I was in the third party just looking at this amazing close up video of this animal with amazing power, amazing speed, so beautiful, so graceful. It was one of the most stunning moments I've had with a an animal of that size and power. It was so beautiful. It was just lovely yeah. <laughs> at the same time. And so we eventually it would disappear for you know two to five minutes, and then when, when it would disappear, what would the Japanese couple do? Would they well, just they, be still, or were they? No, no. Paddle? I was trying to get them to raft up the whole time. I was trying to get them to raft so up. So, what distance were they from you guys? They were getting further and further away. Okay. By this stage, they'd been moved away about oh, three hundred meters. Wow, like and, so, quite a distance. Yeah, and I was trying to get our group. I well, I I was getting our group to separate from our raft structure to paddle a bit closer to offer support so they could come and join us but then the shark would come and circle us so it could get from the Japanese people to us in a heartbeat like I've never seen anything move that quickly like even you know your um, Spanish mackerel and that the way they can swim in the water this shark left them for dead you know it was amazing speed so so it's hunting thing. It's like that. Like when it, when they when they go on for the whales, they separate the baby. Mm. You know what I mean from mm. the mother. Do you reckon that was doing that? It was separating these two. Well, I had my theory that it was the weakest. They were the weakest link in the fact that they weren't very competent paddlers. So they were doing a lot of splashing. Yeah. Um, like they are with fin use. Some yeah. countries, some nationalities aren't very good with using fins. Yeah. They just splash on the surface and they don't actually use the fins effectively. So I had that theory, but it's also why, you know, it's also like here come the Indians, make a ring, a protection ring around me because you know (laughs) i needed to look after myself in order to get the troops home plus um, my level of confidence in that situation was going to get us through but i knew i was in the single so i was effectively the pup yeah and so i had two double sea kayaks padding me yeah Um, or a single and a double padding me and then eventually the japanese came and rafted up so i had um, a double boat a single my single and another double with the girls and um we eventually paddled to Dunk Island, but it took us a good hour. It's normally an hour from departing mainland Mission Beach to Dunk Island. It takes about 45 minutes to an hour. But that day from the incident where we were halfway, it took another hour. And the shark followed us all the way into the beach. But the brilliant thing is, to round up this story, when we finally got to the beach, 
the wet water, the wet sand was still too close to the water. Everyone wanted to be on dry sand, and we just—I never let people drag the kayaks up the up the beach, but we did this day. And then Sylvia's sort of legs went from under her when she hit the sand, and she sort of just collapsed. And I sort of called her, and she said to me, "Which am I allowed to swear?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> she said, "Ingrid, you're fucking brilliant." She said, "You said all the right things. You did all the right things." And I honestly wanted to believe you, but I knew you were full of crap. And I said, (laughs) why is that, Sylvia? And she said, you had no colour from here down. She said, if you had coloured blockout on, she said, I would have bought all your shit. But she said, you had no colour. But she said, there was nothing in your tone or anything. She said, you're fucking brilliant. And I said, thank you, Sylvia. She said, we're in deep shit, weren't we? And I said, yes, Sylvia. (laughs) And then when we said that, the shark had swum up the beach and Dunk Island was going, everyone get out of the water because they were all water skiers and jet skiers and and kids on paddle boards and kids swimming in the water. And the shark cruised up the beach and it was just like the scene from, oh, he come out... um, Horny mating duo. Cassidy's just uh, come back. Aaron's going to stop for a, a little photo photo shot. Well, do you want to pause it and not do it because the glass is dirty? Go out. Oh, they're back. Is it? Wait, this is the same ones? Yes. Okay, we're back. Sorry, the cassery porn again in the backyard. We had to pause. <laughs> so, okay, so we've made it to the beach. Yeah. And the shark, they've cleared everyone out of the water and you guys are now feeling safe. Yeah. What, what was it like, the adrenaline coming down after that? Like, did, what, what was this guy like? He, he ended up acknowledging that um, we handled it right, but it was more Sylvia, I think, you know, because Sylvia was sort of very distressed and saying how much she was grateful that I brought her safely home to mum and and um yeah she she must have misunderstood me when I said the crocodiles ate all the sharks and made <laughs> jokes about it but it took a while but I must say like the shark store the shark situation was um an hour and 20 minutes but he left a a big imprint on um how we come back from adversity. And that's what I was saying earlier when we started about life is like dolphins swimming in the ocean and riding the waves. Like it took me into a fairly hard realisation about myself. It was hard to go back to work for a little while. I had a little bit of a break. But um, the majority of those 18 years were the best times in my life. Like I've paddled with beautiful whales and dolphins and did a lot of sea um, sea turtle and seabird rescue in that time with um, a lot of marine debris and fishing lines and pollution and so forth with um, rescuing wildlife. You know, just the sunrises and sunsets and meeting beautiful people from all over the world and sitting on a beach and cooking up, you know, sharing a meal and sharing the love and sharing my passion for the environment. Mm. So there's so much joy and beauty and this one thing just was like, as, and even the the shark was beautiful in itself. It was a beautiful thing. And I subsequently learnt that, which all the um, commercial fishermen were aware of, but not myself, was um, it was a big female. And apparently they live on the outer continental shelf, rounding up all the pelagic fish and they hunt in schools. But the babies, and I could be corrected, this is just what fishermen told me, that the babies are in utero cannibalistic and so what the big females do and she was apparently known to all the fishermen they come in and they have a territorial range where they're going to have their live pups and it's in all the foreshores the mangroves and the inshore 
reef systems around the islands. So her behaviour was basically just a territorial thing saying, clear off, you're a threat to our my future babies I'm about to have. And then she swims back out to sea. So it was fairly quick in the piece once I got my head around it that I thought if she wanted to eat us, she would have ambush hunted, we would already be gone. My whole fleet was potentially going to be gone if she had jumped out and came down on us. But she was being menacing, but she wasn't actually attacking. And I think after my fear and once I calmed the crew down, I I realised that, yeah, we, we weren't out of the woods. She still could have sunk us and caused us harm, but she wasn't eating us. And I sort of work that out so <laughs> yeah but still what a terrifying experience to be so close and people listening to this podcast know that that i've spoken about shark stories and sharks trying to attack us and it's it's so it's so scary when you're in that situation with such a uh it, as beautiful it is uh, such a wild animal and like that's the thing about nature nature is wild but what i really like about you it's like the more you've connected with nature by being part of nature by being in nature it's like you found that passion there to want to protect it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like to be able to see that shark as a beauty that it is in its natural environment that it is and be like, yeah, like we're in a situation here, but that was just so beautiful. And like, and that's something you want to protect. It's like you're living here backing onto World Heritage Rainforest. It's like I couldn't imagine. Imagine living here and then a bulldozer just coming through and taking this out of your backyard. Oh, I, you know I know. what I mean? And people, that's what I find a lot of people don't, that's why I, I really want to promote people to connecting with nature and being part of nature because when you do that, you understand, like, you kind of understand that you are part of nature and you understand the beauty of it and you see it. And it's like, I think we're just, when we're in, when we're not aware of it, you're just oblivious to it. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And as soon as you start connecting to the beauty of what it is, like, yesterday, just, I was up at Josephine Falls, just sitting there at the waterfall, just watching it. And it's just like, wow, I'm so lucky that this is still here. And then when I look around at the cleared land and you see the boulders and stuff in the cleared land, like where the sugarcane farms, you're like, wow, this was once rainforest. Mm. And then it's like, well, they want to clear more of this. You just be like, well, they've already cleared all this. And just be like, can't you just, let's protect this bit that's left here. We don't want to lose anymore. Yeah. So I can, I can understand, like, you, like, living in, like with such nature and surrounded by animals like this, why you have such a passion for it? Yeah. So what happened after the shark attack? You said you had you had a, a few. Yeah. So after after the shark episode, I sort of had some time out and did a few other jobs, but it was sort of the the needed to re put myself back together and think about how how I was in the in the world and came back. I did a little bit of time living in Alice Springs doing camel tracking actually, and then came back and. It was soon after that that we went through a fairly substantial cyclone and I've been through a couple of cyclones, Cyclone Larry and um, then we were hit by Cyclone Yasi and Cyclone Yasi was something else and I live in a very open plan home. I live, you know, with nature. I'm on the home of the Jewelry people and it was during the cyclone that I saw experience full force of nature and I must say, Aaron, one of the most amazing things that I don't know whether many people have experienced this because it was off tap for me, was when the eye of the cyclone came, it only lasted about 10 or 15 minutes, but I left my home. I was locked up in my pantry, which, as you know, is really tiny. It's a little solid Besser brick coal-filled box that yeah. I used as my cyclone bunker. But when I stepped out into the, um, the onto the block and into the rainforest, 
there was this green, grey, luminescent cloud with lightning and thunder that I wasn't aware there was lightning and thunder in the storm because it just sounded like a thousand freight trains coming straight for you. But when you looked up, it was like you could have been at Alice Springs sliding, you know, um, observatory, looking at the universe. The sky had, oh, for, I don't know what the word is, but like no ozone. You could see the universe, but in the eye of it, there was all these stormbirds and pectorals and um, really large ocean birds just hanging there, just chilling out, riding it out. Do and you reckon I'm, the birds? got caught in the eye of the storm and just hung out and like followed the eye of the storm for safety? Yes, they would have had to have stayed there. They couldn't have um, flown out. And I'm assuming that once it went over land and collapsed, they would have then flown back so out So what was sea. the name of this cyclone again? Cyclone Yasi. So Cyclone Yasi hit like 350 or 320 kilometre winds or something, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was something. 320, I believe. But I'm, I don't know because I lost power and water um, for three and a half months with all the tree roots coming out. And it was after the, the cyclone, um, you know, I'd lost my car, I lost power, I lost part of the roof of the house to a tree coming down. Um, I didn't want to be in my house because I was releasing pure white doves for weddings and funerals because I was doing a plastic-free, balloon-free campaign at the time. And um, all my doves were dead inside the house and I had no water or anything to clean it up. So it was a pretty traumatic place once again the dolphin going down deep and being in a pretty dark space and having to sit in the darkness and yeah. and be at peace with the darkness i think it's a really healthy thing to do to understand the the depths of um our soul and i sort of that's why i like the dolphin analogy to understand the depths of your soul and what you're going through and not run from your fear not run from your pain not run from your grief or trauma to sit with it, understand it, unpack it, come to peace with it, and then learn to love it because it teaches you, you know, that strength and that humbleness and that um, wisdom and um, endurance and dedication and determination that we build in our personality from facing adversity, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So everything was pretty (laughs) ordinary here as far as my home and my... Um, farm was concerned but then once again life throws you these beautiful opportunities and so I was sleeping out in the back paddock just in my swag because I wouldn't come into the house there was also a lot of asbestos not asbestos um, insulation from the roof so um, fiberglass so I was getting fiberglass fibers all through my skin and on my clothes and my bedding so it was just terrible in here so I was sleeping in the swag um, and one afternoon, this little baby cassowary, little tucker eels, only about knee high, came running up the, the block and all scratched and really hungry, really lost. It looked like something had been chasing him, but he was really spooked. And I just, oh, hey, little fella. And I lobbed a banana at this little starving cassowary. And he went over, gobbled it up, and then just jumped straight in my swag. And from that time on... This young cassowary and I spooned and I lived for nine months in my back paddock sleeping with a baby cassowary. You're kidding me. No. <laughs> You're kidding me. So, I now know it's highly illegal. Yeah. But at the time I didn't. Yeah. And um but, but what a thing of hope too. You know what I mean? Like in, in such a 
in the state of mind that you were in and such disaster, like you went through a huge natural disaster that devastated North Queensland, especially this part of North Queensland and, and cycling. Yes, we all know it. Like it just completely like just, just destruct, like the, the amount of destruction that went through this area and the houses that went down from it and everything. It was just absolutely insane. You're living in this. The next thing you have a baby animal, so where was his parents' butt? Like, oh, I don't know what happened to the parents. I don't know which chick it was. I had. Do you reckon they were lost in the cycle? Well, I had nine um, endangered cassowaries that were coming here because national parks. I work with national parks, as I was saying before, and we had three feed stations, and I had nine endangered cassowaries coming here to go to the feed stations because the birds would have starved to death, and they're they're fruit eaters. And so um, the parks had a, a working bees down in town, but because I didn't have any car and wasn't going anywhere, um, I wasn't part of the workstation, but they had the state the food, feed stations here. So I had a lot of the adults, but the little chicks weren't getting a look in. But this little fella um, became, I guess like a, um, it imprinted on me and became like a, any animal that imprints like a chicken or, or a duck. And so when I was walking around the farm cleaning up the debris and picking up logs and bits of tin and wire and that that had blown in from neighbouring farms, um, the cassowary would walk, walk along and was harvesting all the, the snakes and the lizards and the little bits and pieces and foraging. And so as I'd do my clean-up, it would just follow me around, you know. Like, did, you, did you name her? Well, at, in the beginning she was called Tara. Then she became princess tara so what happened was when she was about nine or ten months old and this is interesting because she absolutely followed a wild cassowary's natural behavior so she lived with me and never left my side we did everything together and i never left the farm basically um and if i needed to go into town i'd have to walk onto the road and hitch in because i didn't have a car and so, it, and this place was destroyed. So my twenty-year-old orchard was all belly up, and all the fruit trees and native trees I planted were all tumbleweeded and all pushed to the back of the forest, and the forest was laying flat. And so she and I just hung out and were besties. Um, but then she started doing one night in the rainforest, and she'd do a sleepover in the rainforest, and I'd be like this fretful mother because I was getting separation anxiety at that stage. And she'd go and do a night in the forest, and then she'd do a week, and then she'd do a month. And um, we came to terms with it. And then she slowly didn't come back for about three or four months. And then she'd come back and she was a bit stroppy. And she was just like this teenager, like 13, 14-year-old and becoming a bit stroppy and, <laughs> you know. And then she disappeared for about six months and then she came back and then I went, ah, oh, you're Princess Tara. And she, she decided that she was going to move in and I was going to move out. Like a lot of teenagers, she was really stroppy and we had to actually have a, a long conversation about, you know, <laughs> territorial boundaries. And that's when I realised that I don't think you can actually totally domesticate a cassowary. I think, you know, they, they're as a baby, as a chick, they need nurturing like all baby animals. Um, well, not all baby animals, but many baby animals need nurturing. But once they fledge, they're meant to leave the nest. They're meant to move on and have their own adventures. And they don't often come back. And when they do, the parents are moved on. And so that's what she was trying to do with me. And we established a, a good, healthy relationship where... Um, she would come back in and give me space and I'd give her space. But during this time, I might add, I never fed her. 
um, domesticated food. I'd only ever just pretend that food is falling from trees and let her forage. And so as a chick, she always felt like she was finding food for herself. She never actually was hand-fed or believed that she was getting food from me. And I think if I had created that, I would have had a problem cassowary um, after that because she would have known associated humans with food, but she never associated mm. humans with food, which so, is brilliant. So that's probably a good point to make, as in, like, don't don't feed wildlife because you don't want to humanise them because you're bringing them to humans where there's dogs, where there's cars, where there's, like, potential dangers for them. Yeah, spot you know? on, Aaron. Yeah. Spot on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you when you said, like, she was being a troubled teenager and coming back and trying to move you on, like, what was her behaviour? Like, And how big was she at this stage? Like, was she getting pretty big? Oh, she'd be like a 15-year-old girl, I guess. So she was just sort of a bit pimply and a bit, you know, that, that sprouting pubescent look. So she wasn't totally coloured. She was... Um, brown going on black with a plumage she had a little bit of color on her on her head and a little wattle that was growing and a little cask and the cask they believe is for their hearing um so she wasn't fully um developed at that stage into the regal like, bird that you just saw out here doing like a meter tall the, was she like a meter tall oh no she'd be almost two meters tall but oh, like a filly stage. like she hasn't filled out so yeah. they're almost the same height but they're really slim and leggy and gangly and 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 was she coming at you like staunching and like yeah. getting you to move out of her way and yes <laughs> and, and 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 an animal like that as we just saw them uh, just before that yeah I would not want to go <laughs> they can kill you they're yeah. huge they're dinosaurs yeah that thing imagine it pecking you in the head with that beak well they they're or actually they kick they kick you if you've ever been attacked by a rooster rooster weighs what ten or fifteen kilos. Not even. Yeah. A cassowary <laughs> like, weighs no. 80 to 100 kilos. You don't want to be attacked by a cassowary. It'd be like, yeah, being attacked by a big rooster. Shit. Yeah, you don't want it. So, But, you know, in the 30 years I've lived here and worked with cassowaries, I've never been attacked. And even when we had to um, anaesthetise a cassowary if it was hit by a car and take it into the vet and I would be working at the cassowary hospital with them, um, you have to be very mindful when you're grabbing a cassowary, but you know that it's like many animals. I think if you understand their behaviour and you work with them, you know they um, they cooperate. It's like you hear those stories about yeah. people cutting whales out of nets, and the whales will be thrashing around and carrying on, and then the human jumps in the water and says, "Come on, fella," and they telepathically communicate and say, "Come on, fella, it's okay. I'm here yeah. to help." And then the whales seem to roll over and assist, lift their flipper. And, yeah. you know, cassowaries are, are a bit the same. I think all animals are, actually. Yeah. yeah. I often find watching, you know, because I live, live off grid down in the bush surrounded by National Park, very different forest to you. But, you know, I, I often say, like, I live with the animals and they live with me. Like, it's mm. like, you know. But, like, one thing that I've really noticed is actually how intelligent animals are. Mm. And it's like, for some reason, we kind of just think we're so superior. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like then once you kind of live with them, you're like, oh, fuck, they, they kind of know what's going on here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Very, yeah. It, it, was it Einstein that said you can't judge a fish's intelligence by its ability to know how to fly? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's yeah. exactly right, Aaron. Like, I'm, I'm actually glad you said that because it, that's why I don't have any domestic animals because to me, whilst they give a lot of joy to many people and they can be helpful, but they also 
you know, they entrap you because then you've got a big responsibility. Mm. I don't have any dem- any fences to keep nature out nor to keep domestic animals in. Yeah. And also I create lots of bird baths and different ecosystems. So I, I've got a pond that you've seen and I've got um, fish growing in there to remove my mosquito problem and I also have that for frog breeding. So a lot of yeah. the endangered frogs come and breed in the ponds. I've got little habitats and ecotones for our lizards, for the goannas. So it's a natural environment and I'm a part, a member of a community of ecosystem species of the rainforest rather than bringing in, you know, what I've coined domestic predatory animals. Most people have dogs and cats, which are carnivores. (laughs) um, So under the strata agreement that I live under down at Goolawa, the cooperative that I live in, um, yeah, there's no dogs or cats. Um, no fences so wildlife can roam free and that's why we have so so much wildlife but we went to a meeting because a lot of the members do want to get domesticated animals because you know because it is so nice having a dog and everything but what I found so interesting and I've seen this now um, we had this environmentalist come in and she explained it's actually just the predatory smell Mm. the predatory smell of a dog will keep the natives away You know, and then I had a friend come down to mine. I always have people, you know, just rock up. There's always people staying at my place and I love it. But it's hard for people to understand that we can't have dogs there. Mm. So I've, it's many times I've said to people, oh, you can't, yeah, oh, we can't have a dog. But they'll turn up with a dog anyway. And they're like, oh, no, my dog, look, it's just, you know, they're a cuddly little thing. We had this beautiful chocolate lab rock up, my friend's dog, and like such a beautiful placid dog. And you're like, oh, this thing wouldn't hurt a fly. You know, it's the first thing it does as soon as it sees the kangaroo just boom takes off chasing these kangaroos and now i've got now i've got the the animals that live in my backyard in fear and running for their life and these dogs just like what is this big thing chasing it around but what i noticed just from the scent of that dog came twice to my place and both times just from the scent like we, we kept it tied up so it couldn't all kept it in the house so i couldn't get out but just both times I didn't see kangaroos and I, I could at any one time I could open up my back door and there'll be 30 kangaroos right there mm-hmm. and wallabies. And I didn't see, I didn't see kangaroo. It took them five, six days to be able to come back in. And when they first came in, they were very, um, you know, very on edge. And, but I was actually surprised the wallabies, it took them only about two or three days mm. to come back in. I was surprised. I, was, I thought the kangaroos being the bigger animal and everything would, yeah, a lot more game to come back in, you know, but um, it was actually the wallabies that came in first. And then I was like, the wallabies came, would come in and get their territory back. And then once they would be settled again, then the kangaroos would come back in and then the kangaroos and wallabies all live back together. But it's just so weird just having that one domesticated animal you don't see anything. Koalas, goannas, possums, mm. everything just stays away. And so it is such a sacrifice that I have to make because I always wanted a dog and I'd love one. But it's like living with native animals all around around you and them just going about their business mm. and you just being part of it. With I, th- you, I think with you them. learn more as a, as a person if you actually can accept wildlife and what you experience when you're living... Um, side by side with wildlife of the biodiversity of it whereas a domestic animal you know they're um whilst they're a lovely animal they do have that impact yeah they they really do like even birds on beach you know birds on beaches there's um birdlife australia has a, a campaign called birds on beaches dogs on leashes 
and it's about you know even uh, doesn't matter how good your dog is the wildlife don't know that yours is a good dog versus yeah. a bad dog so they're going to be act on the precautionary principle and flee yeah. and for shorebirds and turtles if they see or smell dogs on the beaches they're not going to be breeding and seabirds at the moment and ocean birds are the largest growing species on the planet into going into extinction and that's right around Australia, all our birds, mm. because we don't have enough zones where there's not dog and cat and um, car free on beaches yeah. and foxes in down Victoria and so mm. forth, just so nature can be nature. You know what I found too? It's like we we feel so superior and it's something you really learn to respect nature because they live there too. Now imagine, imagine like, you know, you're living with your parents or whatever and your mates come around. And there's like a certain level of respect that, you know, it's all to someone else. Like if I, if I was here right now and say like you had someone else living here, I've got to, I'm going to respect their space. You know what I mean? I wouldn't go around and pissing them off. And I had some friends down at mine and we went to have a shower and there were some kangaroos there and there was a garden in behind them. And my mate's like, oh, I really want to get a photo here and everything and, like, you know, document this and come up and the kangaroo started getting pissed off because it was cornered. And I was like, dude, you're pissing the kangaroo off. Like, just, like, step back a bit. And he's like, no, 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 and kept going up. And the can- the the kangaroo, there was two there, and they started getting, like, really pissed off. And I was like, dude, like, don't annoy them. And he didn't understand, like, where I was coming from. And he didn't do anything wrong. It, it, it was just, it was just, it didn't understand that, the connection with nature there, that it's like they live there. And they're just going about their business. Don't piss them off. You know what I mean? I was just like, dude, they like don't annoy them. Like, just they're getting pissed off, man. Like they have, in my mind, because I live with them. It's like, oh, they've got the right to be there. They want to hang out there. They don't want you coming and annoying them. Just and I kind of think of it. It's like your roommate. You know, your friends come over. You don't just go piss them off. You know, and like push them out of their space. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm like, don't push him out and make him uncomfortable where he is. That's where he's hanging out. It's his spot. Yeah. And it's like it was like a hard for people to kind of get that i think mm-hmm. like which i've seen it's yeah well we we certainly wouldn't have been sitting here in the lounge room um watching two cassowaries come in and and get ready to do the wild thing and have a little drink in the pond if if i had any domestic animals here yeah you know that just that experience which is priceless and if david Attenborough would have been here he would have been going wow 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 yeah but that wouldn't have happened if yeah. i'd had you know um, domestic predatory animals here. Yeah. Yeah. But that brings me to a campaign that I'm really keen to share with you, Aaron. We haven't had an opportunity to talk about this. I've started a campaign. I'm the Secretary for Far North Queensland Friends of the Earth, which is a really big national, regional and international organisation that focuses on environmental and social justice. And we've started a campaign in Far North Queensland and it's called Guardians of the Wet Tropics. So, I love that name, Guardians of the Wet Tropics. Yeah. So what does Guardians mean for you, Aaron? Protector. Yeah. Anything else? Warrior. Yeah. Protector. Because for us, Guardians was to protect, but also to care for and enhance because the Guardian oh, protects. yeah. Guardians the carer yeah. Yeah. as well. You know what I mean? Who's yeah. your guardian? Who's caring for you? Who's yeah. protecting you? Who's looking after you? Spot on. Yeah. yeah. Who's the overseer? Yeah. So... Yeah. So the campaign is basically what we want to do is we want to find people that are already doing really good or best practice as being a backyard buddy or a neighbour to World Heritage or National Park or a river or creek or beach 
So somebody who has an ecosystem in their backyard. And from there, we want to find the people doing their best practice. And then what we've coined um, GI, which is geographical indicator. And so what's special about your patch? Um, I'm the community organiser, so I'll be doing your what you're doing here with me. And that is, tell me what you love about your patch. And we're, I've interviewed people that just love platypus or they've got this thing going on with green frogs or the latest one is um, fire stick management with learning how to traditionally burn country or tree kangaroos. There's a whole range of people doing great stuff to protect their patch. And one of the things I've realised and with what happened here was that people can really do a really good job or really stuff it up badly. So how you treat your your edge effect is what's going to make the difference to whether the wet tropics biosystem ecosystem survives or fails. And when you look on online at the UN, this is listed. The wet tropics of far north Queensland is only 0.8 percent um, is under national park, and it's the second most irreplaceable ecosystem on the planet. And it is in free fall off a cliff of species going into extinction. And the reason for that is it's got such a big edge effect that it nearly stretches, if you were to stretch out the borders, from Cooktown to Melbourne. So that's is that because of the Great Dividing Range? No, no, no. It's the, the land area is so fringed and fragmented and islands and pockets that there's a lot of area for edges. It's like it's not in a circle, one big body of mm. land. And it, so it's got neighbours that can either be a good neighbour or a bad neighbour. And so you mean edge like people or community on the edge of that? Yes. Na- yeah. That wonder. Neighbouring. Like, like I am here. So what it, what we'd do is we'd find people that are doing really good or best practice, I, identifying what they love about their patch, giving it a geographical indicator. And then from there we'd, we'd invite a world-leading expert or an expert in the field of looking after platypus habitat. Yeah. Get them to come, put on a, a, a picnic in the backyard, invite all the neighbours that are interested or keen to be upskilled, form a bit of a, like a neighbourhood watch around that species where they all agree to a set of shared commons and on shared... Va- yeah, so sharing the values, sharing the collective intelligence, documenting that, developing a methodology and a wheel around how do, how are we going to protect the platypus habitat in your patch. So, so wait, in, a, in a real simple way, like say you've got a farm backing onto a creek that has platypus and you go up to the farm and you say, hey, what do you really like about this area? And he goes, oh, I love that I back onto you know, this, this creek that has platypus in it. And then you're like, oh, okay, but you, you farm here and like, oh, maybe you've got runoff that goes into the creek, which is actually you know, detrimental to the platypus. So would you go in and like just spread awareness or like best practice to for him himself to look after what he likes about what he's would would it work like that? No. We 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 basically don't feel we have any right to put put our values on someone who doesn't actually share our values. So yeah. what we're doing is people who are interested and or interested but need to be upskilled or need help and support to develop the skills and the whether that be re-vegging, yeah. putting in nesting boxes for owls, whether it be cleaning up weeds, whether it be spray-free um, permaculture, sustainable re-vegging, whatever yeah. it may be. So we want to work with people who are 
already engaged, wanting to do it, but lack the skills or resources. Yeah. Or the so user IT. Are the user the, the information there. Well, we only can... want to gift it over yeah. with an expert, and from there, the leader in that community will look after that neighbourhood watch. Then we share that with the rest of the um, collective of people working all around the wet tropics. And then eventually what we'd like to do is incentivise it by then that collective of people can go to council with our support and say, okay, well, we're doing really good or best practice. We want rate relief or we want to be gifted back because we've didn't bulldoze that last five acres of our block or we've re-vegged it, enhanced it, removed all the weeds from the riverfront, put in nesting boxes, so give us some rate relief. But then the person who's letting his oh, cattle go in the creek on bulldozing... Yeah, so we incentivise that. Yeah. But then the person who's doing bad practice and dumping their car bodies in the creek, letting their cattle go in the creek, you know, using barbed wire fences, trashing it, weeds, letting weeds escape into the world heritage. Well, we we, we think they should get disincentivized or penalised and have environmental surcharge put on their rates. So we'll, you know, the carrot and the stick approach with yeah. what we're doing and eventually change the social consciousness of what people are doing and their shared practice. values for best practice. Yeah. But what's motivating us to do it is climate change. So we'll be developing carbon credits. We'll also be linking people over, linking people with the traditional owners of the land to break down the colonial narrative and bring them into doing uh, more Indigenous practice if they're interested and um, bridging the gap between... Um, non-indigenous and indigenous peoples we also want to be want to be bringing together you know what, what, what i just wanted to say too when you're just talking about okay world here it did rain for us i really just want to put in the point that which is something that really blew my mind when i came up here especially the dane tree in this this world heritage rainforest that we're back onto right now is the oldest rainforest in the world you know what i mean and just that alone it's like Fuck, it just blows me out. We've got the Great Barrier Reef right here and they want to blow holes in it and they want to put the Adani mine. They want, they want to do, we've got these, until you actually see the beauty of it and see actually what's in our backyard, it's just, it's just you know, we go on about protecting the Amazon and that's the, and we, we need to and we should and everything, but the Amazon, but we've also got, we've got here in our backyard, we have the oldest rainforest in the world. There's like species here that have not found anywhere else in the world and I think it's, yeah, we just need to protect it. Like I was saying, I was, I was at the waterfall yesterday, sitting there meditating, like just being so appreciative of what was around me. And I was just like, well, holy shit, we need to protect this. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. We don't realize when you're sitting there, you're like, oh, I just, now nah, I'll just do another few acres here, do another few acres there. It's like, we're eating away on like one of the wonders of the world. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like, how much do we want to take? Like, how much do we want to take, you know? I read this absolutely amazing statistic the other day that made me sit down and think about things um, on an even deeper level, plunge, and that is 8% of the world's population remaining is Indigenous. Only 8% is Indigenous or um, tribal primitive people. And so what do you mean by that? Do you mean or like tri- Indigenous indig- Australian? No, globally. Globally. And they protect 80% of the wild places that are remaining on the planet. So you've got 8% of the population caring for 80% of the population uh, yeah. of wild, wild spaces. 
Sorry, my my yeah. my um the coffee's hitting in now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But with the Guardians of the Wet Tropics campaign, I guess our our thinking is we've all got grandkids, we've all got kids. We want to leave the place a better place, and we want to also look at things for community happiness index, the wellness of our communities, breaking down the the social divides with yeah. different peoples around the the wet tropics and once we've developed this methodology of having robust healthy communities working collaboratively sharing the common values and the collective intelligences of how to do best practice on their land and protect the edge effect and adding and enhancing the world heritage values then we'll feed that into the friends of the earth website and then all communities around australia can use our methodology and our model and adapt it to suit their environment. And then from there, the world. <laughs> yeah. What did you say before? Global Happy Index or Happy Index? Uh, the, ha- the Community Happiness Index. Community Happy. You know, I was thinking yesterday too, too, and I said it to you, what I wrote um, when I was out at the waterfall, you know, forests like this or just nature like this, we don't not just need it for like, you know, the water we drink and the air we breathe and like... And the food we eat, you know, like looking after the environment. But it, it goes beyond that. And it goes like literally us as an animal, us as a human that needs connection. And we and we all know it. We pay, we pay all this money to go on retreats to sit in nature. We like we go camping and we do all this stuff to be in nature, right? Because we need it. We need it to feed our mind, our spirit, our soul, right? And so like it's for some reason I always find that this part's forgotten that we actually need it for our mental state you know what I mean it's like we live across the beach like along the beach the east coast of Australia because people want to be near the ocean you know Mm. what I mean they want to be connected to the ocean they want to feel it and everything so it's like yeah I don't know it's just like I was thinking yesterday it's like to People don't understand we also need it for our own mental health and our happiness. Our mental and physical health and, and the survival. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, breaking it down, it's survival as well. But it, it's like um, when people pay to go to a really flash day spa and they lay down in an air-conditioned room with a scented candle and listen to uh, the sounds of a waterfall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, or... Go and see a waterfall. Now, I appreciate not a lot of people can do that, but it is, you've all got an ecosystem nearby that you can access. Mm. Even if you're in the CBD of some city, you've got a community garden. And it's linking with your people, linking with your community, linking to nature, getting your hands dirty and working cooperatively and sharing the collective intelligence and commons with the people of earth justice and social justice. And in saying that too, you know, because um, I, I live down in Crescent Head, backs onto where I live, it backs onto National Park and then and then National Park beaches. Uh, with the whole COVID thing, the place is so clean and beautiful. And as soon as the restrictions started lifting, lifting, we had those people escaping back to nature, and that was so beautiful and brilliant. But one thing, as beautiful your heart is, and like in the right place, you just got to remember too, people just in their way make an impact and I mean like the more like say like you're driving a ute and like you're you're very garbage conscious you put all your stuff in the bin but there's just that the more people it's that heightened chance of like stuff flying out of your car mm. you know what I mean and that's mm. what we find it's like you know I, I ride across a, across a national park road to go surfing on my motorbike and there's garbage littered on the side of the road now that isn't people throwing garbage out that's just like literally the the number of 
people going through, it's a higher chance that stuff will fall out or, you know, like things will fall out of their camping gear or whatever, or just like having that impact. But what I've found too is just the, like we want to keep these areas beautiful and protected, but it's like us as community can do that together. So what I've found too is like when we go along, me and my mates, because we live there and we want to keep it beautiful, we'll pick up that garbage. You know what I mean? Just because we didn't drop it and I understand people didn't intentionally do that, but it's like, you know, we can all still come together and and help and just like mm. clean up a little bit you know sure that's sorry that was my two bob words <laughs> <laughs> it was it, well but it kind of hurts in a way you know how much does it hurt your spirit or your soul like you do a big hike to somewhere like and beautiful nature and then you just see garbage i did it mm. yesterday because i'm doing this treasure hunt i'm burying treasure around that sounds so exciting it's so fun and i climbed to this place yesterday and this hollow and then i found a beer can like in i found a beer can and a plastic bottle in there and I was like how did this get in here but it's just like at the same time yeah sad I think we've all got to do our bit Aaron and yeah. and I think the the secret is not making anyone wrong for their thing where they're at in their evolutionary journey it's about I I think the way I look at it is we need to yeah. hold hands work together and bring people on a journey with us it's not standing here and pointing at the other and saying you're, you're wrong, wrong yeah. for blowing up that balloon you know you're wrong for having you know you know yeah. rubbish falling out of your trailer it's about sort of saying hey you know yeah. are you aware well how annoying is it as like a person say you are doing something oblivious that, like and this has happened to, <laughs> happened to me you know several times i'm doing something and you can't always keep everyone happy and someone comes over that you don't know and starts like getting up you about something and what I always find really, really frustrating is someone comes at you with problems but no solutions. Yes. You know what I mean? So it's just like you're sitting there and you just get someone going off at you and you're like, <laughs> mate, okay, okay, I understand you've just brought my awareness. This is really cool, but what's the solution? Yeah. You know, don't – and there is no solution. It's like come at me with a solution so we can work together. That's right. You know, if there's something that's like you're not liking, come at me with a solution so we can work together. If you just come at me just guns blazing, I'm, you know, like human nature is you're going to – is you're going to kind of stand up for yourself and not listen and kind of come back. And I found, actually, here's a story. We're driving <laughs> to work one day and one of the guys that I um, work with is a environmentalist and he's a, a vegan ac- activist and a really good heart. But he's also a six foot six Muay Thai fighter bodybuilder. <laughs> and not he's the loveliest guy, but he's one of those guys that would never pick anything, would never start anything, but would be happy to end it. You know what I mean? Like you just, you just wouldn't fuck with the dude. And we're driving along on the way to work and the car in front of us threw their garbage out of the window. And so my mate wanted to like, he, he when we got to work, he wanted to go up and like give him one, you know? So like, what's that going to do, dude? That's just going to like strengthen their narrative or strengthen their thing because now you're you're against them or, or, or whatever. It's just like, he's like, nah, they need to learn or I'm going to go up and like, you know, I was like, well, what are they going to do? They're not going to learn. They're just like, now you're just the opposite team. And I was like, let me just have a go for a second. And I walked up to these guys and I was like, oh, hey, guys, just so you know, um, back there, because they were driving a, a ute. I said, oh, just out the back, you had some garbage fly out of the back of, of, of the ute. You know, it's, and I said, oh, it's because we actually pulled over and picked it up. And I said, oh, it's, it's all cool. We grabbed it for you. We'll put it in the bin, you know, but just so you know, stuff's flying out the back. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. But it was so weird that, like, it kind of made him feel bad. You know, we, they became aware and they said, sorry, oh, sorry about that. Even though we, we know they threw it out. But I, I reckon if we just went up and was like, 
F you guys, you did this, blah, they would have been like, fuck you too, man, you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know, I just, that was my approach at the time, and I think it, it, it worked, I don't know, because it brought a bit of awareness, and it was like, I didn't come out, I was like, oh, hey, but at the same time, I used to do it, we, I grew up at 19th Ave Palm Beach on the Gold Coast, and we got a McDonald's put at the end of the street on the beach, and then, just suddenly there was just litter all over the beach, it went from being the cleanest beach in Queensland, to just garbage all over the beach, and I'd sit there in the afternoon, surfing, and watch people get Maccas, walk down the beach, eat their McDonald's on the beach, get up, leave all their garbage there, walk off the beach, past the bin, and continue going. And what I used to do, and this would happen every day, I used to get pissed off at first, and then, because I was like 15 or 16, and then I found myself like getting into trouble because people just, in arguments with people. So I just started doing this. I just started going, that I'd see them leave their stuff and walk, and I'd just walk down, pick it up, come back, not say anything, and put it in the bin. And you'd see them like be so embarrassed, you know what I mean? But just not say anything. And then I've had some people say, oh, sorry about that. I'd be like, no, nah, it's all right, dude. I'll, I'll put it in the bin, you know, like, it's all cool. I just don't like garbage on the beach. And then, you know, it like brings, and I just always found that was so powerful doing that. And I, I think um, what started the Guardians campaign or the Guardians project is what happened, which was, you know, really tragic for me, is the nine cassowaries, including princess tara you know mm-hmm. I, I love them with a passion and you know these birds some of them were like um avalon and ishmael and dude and were over 50 year old birds you know they can live up to they believe 65 years in the wild and so they were beautiful and regal and walk around and raid my fruit orchard and i was happy to share a bit of food you know we've taken so much from nature and um you know i had the water ponds here so they could come and have a drink but um, in 2015, a pack of... Oh, the birds have come back in. Yeah, as we're talking about them. As we're talking about them. But a pack of um, unrestrained roaming hunting dogs came and trespassed through my property and over a four-month period killed and mauled to death all the cassowaries, including Princess Tara. So I was a witness because I work a bit with CSIRO. I had cameras here. And the... Sorry, we're getting interrupted by the cassowaries again. Beautiful interruption. These are new birds that have just moved in, occupying the space from the previous people, the previous birds that got killed. So these are only young ones. So these ones, they were mauled by hunting dogs. Yeah, so... You know, the cassowaries are like a chook. They sit on the ground at night. They've got fast-twitch muscle fibres. They can run at, at great speed but only for a short distance before they get a lactic acid build-up. And with no night vision and sleeping on the ground, if there is any threat, they won't get up and move at night unless there's a full moon. So, yeah, whereas dogs, they can hunt alone or in a pack. They can do a 25-, 30-kilometre range in a single hunt. Anyway, the dog spent four months and went through the rainforest behind my property and trespassed through my property and killed everything, you know, the goannas, the stripy possums, the I had bush turkeys, scrub hens, paddy melons, the nine cassowaries plus Tara all got killed. And was this someone, someone owned these dogs? Like these were hunting dogs for pigs? Yeah. Like pigging dogs? They were bred for pigging, but, you know, the science tells us that Pig hunting dogs generally, as a rule, scatter the, the pigs across the ecosystem. You're a lot better having a big trap and baiting and trapping and catching 50 in a single go. And you'll also get the sows. Hunting, hunters 
generally as a rule, not you know, this is a generalisation, generally go for the boar, not the sow. And if you want to wipe out a species, you're best to go for the sow. But where I was going with um, sharing that was the fact that these guys are getting closer and closer with their intimacy. But where I was going with that is the way people's minds think, I, I, I would really like to end this conversation with you on a really think big. And so what people came to me when I was doing talkback radio at that stage saying, people, you've got to be responsible dog owners. And I started a campaign for responsible dog ownership. If you own a dog, you're 100% responsible for its actions. And I got all the regional councils around the wet tropics to do an audit to make sure people had the animal management compliance for fencing, microchipping and registration so we could make people accountable if they attacked wildlife or a person. And Children are the highest demographic to be attacked by roaming dogs and that's aged between 2 and 14 and they're generally attacked on their face and neck and the wounds can be quite substantial. And historically we used to only own one dog and it'd be a small to medium sized dog and the dogs would generally be socialised. But now we've got a culture of owning larger bodied dogs um, and multiple of them and... um, This isn't just bagging out dogs. It's to say that the change in the demographic of the size and the nature of how we're housing these dogs and the way dogs work means that if you've got a motorbike out of control coming down a busy street, it's going to cause a lot less damage than a truck sliding down a busy street. So little Fluffy comes and attacks you. You're going to require one or two stitches in your ankle to fix up your wound and you can grab Fluffy with one hand and pick him up and say put him back in your handbag but if you got two T-Rexes who have barred you up that are used for hunting that have been purpose trained and taught to hunt and they decide they don't like your mojo and they go you they could potentially kill you and worst case scenario and you know some of the best case scenarios is you're going to need major face or shoulder reconstructive surgery because they're going to have ripped your arm out of the arm socket Mm -hmm. and you're going to have major wounds from it. But the people's narrative to me was what made me think about the way people think. And I I just want to finish up by saying people think bigger because everybody said to me, what you need to do, Ingrid, is fence your property. And I thought, wow, so you want me to let serial killers continue to roam around the streets while I've fenced the property to keep myself and any wildlife that I happen to capture in this property safe rather than fixing the problem. Alternatively, people said, get a gun and shoot the, the dogs. and Or the owners, some people said. But in both instances, that would have been a one-off fix. Whereas what I did was I set about to work with the Environmental Defender's Office which I think is a great organisation. And if you've got any spare coin around, please donate to the Environmental Defender's Office. And we put in a private member's bill to crack down on illegal backyard breeding to stop all the healthy puppies and kittens being euthanised. And we also encouraged all the regional councils to do audits. And we did a huge um, wet tropics campaign for responsible dog ownership. So we fixed the greater regional problem not just what was happening in my backyard. And I think if you're going to spend the time 
with an issue. It doesn't matter what the issue is. We all have to dive down into the deeps of these things and drudge through the mud. You know, that's how a lotus, you know, when you think of yeah. the Buddha story, you know, with the lotus, you start in the mud and the murk and the, and the darkness and you have to emerge up and you become this beautiful lotus flower, like the dolphin narrative of coming up for air and in the bubbles and riding the waves. If you're going to put the work into researching something, understanding something, going through the pain and the trauma, because I was in a lot of a world of pain and trauma from watching these animals get mauled. Put it to good use. Don't just fix your problem. See how you can uh, um, develop a methodology or fix a bigger problem than just yours and gift it on. Gift on your solution. Find the solution and gift it to people because you're not the only one who's got this problem. I can guarantee you. Whatever your problem is, you're not alone. There's someone else with your problem. And if you fix it, like Rosie Batty. Rosie Batty had a problem. She got on on the stage and shared her problem and the solution to a whole world of women. Who is Rosie Batty? She's the domestic Domest- violence oh, victim. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she's the ve- domestic violence victim. And the tragedy that happened to her is what happened to me, well, what happened to the Cassaries on this property here. And she was my hero. And even though our stories weren't related, I saw her pain and trauma and how she didn't just stop at fixing what happened to her. She said, if this has happened to me, it's happened to we. And Muhammad Ali has the shortest poem in the world. It's me, we. So if you're going to fix it for me, fix it for we. Because I sure as hell wish that somebody who had had this problem previously to me had fixed the problem for the region because yeah. then I wouldn't have had the problem and I could have put my my yeah. life to saving something else. That's, thank you for, yeah, thank you. Thank you for being you and standing up for this stuff because it's, it is people like you that right now. Like we. Like we <laughs> that get to sit here and enjoying this beautiful rainforest that your your property backs onto and watching dinosaurs walk around you know what i mean like that is that is so magical to be able to do that you know what i mean and Mm. like it takes people like because if no one ever this is what i was thinking the other day like when i was i was doing this construction job we're talking about the union and and we're talking about like civil rights in australia and blah blah people standing up and i was like oh people don't really i was just thinking like no not enough people stand up anymore it's like we're getting paid it's like people are scared to stand up and i was like saying we're getting paid well right now because the union stood up and people back the union and everyone stood up and said, hey, this isn't right. You know what I mean? If not, we would have been getting paid eight bucks an hour or something, you know, to do that job because a big company is going to pay the least amount they can. Like, they don't care. They're trying to make money. Mm. You know what I mean? Right now, this World Heritage Rainforest, so much of it's being cleared and more is going to be cleared. The only reason why it doesn't is because people are standing up. Mm. For it, you know, so the more people that stand up, mm. the more we get to protect things. You mm. know what I mean? Things like nature, things like these casseries. You know, they could be a thing of the past, and and it's scary to think that they will one day be a thing of the past. Mm. You know what I mean? Unless people st- not like, on our watch, Aaron. Yeah, not on our watch. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> wow, like what a magical thing to see. Yeah. Well, that's where I hope. You know, it's like building a green army. The guardians of the wet tropics was. It's a green army that's planting trees, putting up nesting boxes, weeding, yeah. you know, and looking after, cleaning up the riverbanks for the platypus and the fish and the, the little 
you know, freshwater guppies and, you know, mahogany gliders and all these species that are really struggling. They're on the brink at the moment yeah. doing Indigenous fire burns with Victor Stephenson up at Coa. You know, he's doing some great stuff. You know, the cattle in- industry and the livestock industry brought in a, um, a lot of different grasses that burn a hot fire. And um, Victor's been doing these amazing mosaic cool mosaic traditional fire practices teaching the indigenous rangers and the raw the fire brigade and the bushfire is up there and uh, our group how they do this and all of a sudden um the grasses are starting to dwindle but what's popping up in their place is the the truffle that the the northern betong that's only i believe there's only 680 left in the, this region and all of a sudden his food supply is coming back and so the northern betong's coming back. And it's like, what a joyful story. Everybody wants to follow a joyful story. Everybody wants to be on a winning team. Everybody yeah. wants hope. Everybody wants to feel part of a community, to feel the love, you know. So if we can build a, you know, I feel the love, you know, just get <laughs> it going on and just feel happy. Uh, Do things that pa- get, find your passion. Doesn't matter what it is, find your passion or join hands, you know, and get in and do it. And the people that aren't part of that tribe, that's okay because maybe they'll look and see all the fun they're missing out on and join your tribe. You know, maybe yeah. they'll stop chopping down the trees and, you know, putting up cages and caging paradise. Maybe they'll let carrot paradise be yeah yeah and it's in and in doing that you're spreading awareness yeah you know what i mean it's like on my journey like i grew up i grew up on the gold coast and then now living in the bush like fuck it's just like been this huge amazing learning journey and i look at back at some things that i did and i was like wow like that wasn't the best decision i made at that time like you know i could add all these impacts and like i i came from such a good good i came like i wasn't intentionally doing anything bad but then I've just learnt better practice. You know what I mean? You're like, wow, that's a bit better. Might do that now. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, like I, I live on the land of the Juru Indigenous people here. I sort of really believe in, like most Indigenous people around the world, where we really start needing to look after things for future generations. It's like it if we can protect it for our children and our grandchildren, which is what motivates me and that's what keeps me so driven and passionate to work as campaigners on these causes. You know, I'm running a lot of campaigns and it is for social um, justice and ecological justice, but, you know, the big climate change issues and, um, you know, they can feel a little bit beyond us to do something for climate change, but if we just work on joining a local community group wherever you live and, and doing your part... You're adding to the collective, you know, yeah. and it doesn't matter what you're doing, whether you're protecting the reef or the rainforest or the rivers or the oceans or the beaches or the rainforest or the yeah. desert or the species. They all are part of the biodiversity yeah. that will care for the collective. Yeah, and if one person says to this, yeah, but you drive a car... I would like to slap you. <laughs> no, I, was just, I hate that. And you're like, yeah, it's like we're always going to have an impact, but doesn't mean it's I'm already making one impact by driving a car. doesn't mean I'm going to get all my garbage and throw it out the window. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. It's like, oh, you make an impact. So let's just like, I'm not going to intensify that. It's like, yeah, there's parts that I can do just to lessen my impact 
a little bit. You know what mm. I mean? Mm. It's like it might be as simple. Oh, my mate Blake, we were talking about keep cups, and he was like, instead of having a keep cup, just get an old jar and put the rubber bands around it. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's like, instead of like purchasing a new product that's getting made, he's like, you can recycle an old one and you have the same thing. Mm. It's kind of cool. It's a bit quirky and it's reusable. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, instead of like, yeah. But in the same time, the guy that like was telling me that he drives a car, but he's like, yeah, but I'm not going to buy. He loves coffee. And he's like, I'm not going to, he drinks like three or four coffees a day. He's not going to throw out four cups a day. And so many people have got so many great innovations, you know, like with the boomerang bags or, you know, shop at Vinnie's, reuse, you know, shop less. You know, you could go on and on. Yeah. Anyway. All right, let's do it. It's been wonderful talking to you today, Aaron. It's been, and I can't believe we got interrupted, not once, but twice by Cassaries courting and doing getting ready yeah. to do the wild thing. Absolutely amazing. Thank you for being such a strong woman, an Thank adventurous you. woman. Yeah. And someone that has so many wild stories because you live <laughs> such a such a courageous, adventurous life. Aaron, like <laughs> like you, we live a dolphin life, you know, yeah. and I I embrace it every I challenge everyone. Look at life like a dolphin. Ride yeah. the ride the waves of the highs and the lows and when you're in the lows, don't go into despair. Dig deep. See what's what you can learn from it, how to develop the strength. Because we're not born strong, we develop we yeah. develop wisdom, we develop strength. Yeah. You're not born that way. Yeah. Thank you. Pleasure. Uh, Just good. do it. Uh, much love, it. Hope you liked the episode, guys. Feel free to share it, and please go on iTunes and leave a rating. Now. Something tragic happened after the recording of this episode. Now, when Cassidy's mate and the female lays the eggs, it's actually the male that raises, that sits on the eggs and raises the chicks without the female support. So a week after we recorded this episode, tragically, someone made the irresponsible choice to speed and overtake in a critical cassowary crossing hotspot location and struck and killed that male. That male that mated that day in front of us so an endangered species mated and the male has been killed and the chicks will never hatch now ingrid is continuing to lobby for road safety for cassowaries across the wet tropics but please guys when you go to the wet tropics and you see these signs please take it seriously because these are an endangered magical animal enjoy guys I do it like a double.